Hey everybody, welcome to the 48th episode of our World News Podcast. This podcast, along with all of our other podcasts, are part of Northern Provisions LLC. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the journal's bulletin from the Borderlands. That's a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to Lethal Minds Journal dot substack.com or instagram at lethal.minds.journal also please consider supporting us on patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate or you can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyze and educate really appreciate all your guys' support of course uh, every little bit we get just brings us closer to uh, really being able to do this full time and give you guys uh, the amount of content that you deserve Hope everybody's having a good weekend. Uh, got my notes done early, so I'm finally like getting this out on time. It is Saturday night, so this should be out Sunday morning for you guys when when I would ideally like these to be out every week. Uh, I'm having a good weekend. Giants just beat the Dodgers 15-0, to so I'm pretty happy about that. Um, yeah, let's head into the news. Okay, and we're going to start it off with the United Kingdom. The former leader of the Scottish National Party and also the former First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, was taken into custody by police over allegations of misuse of funds during her time as First Minister. Law enforcement began Operation Branch Form, which apparently was not actually named after anything. That's just a name they came up with for whatever reason. Uh, was launched to determine what happened to over 660,000 pounds or roughly 770,000 US dollars that were donated to the SNP by activists to fundraise for another Scottish independence referendum. Sturgeon's husband and former SNP chief executive uh, Pete Morrell and SNP treasurer Colin uh, Beatty were both arrested by police earlier in the year for questioning. They were both released shortly thereafter, but still may face charges in the future. Sturgeon herself was released before the 12-hour deadline hit in which police have to decide whether or not to charge somebody with a crime, but the investigation is still ongoing and Sturgeon can be charged at a later date. Moving on to Romania on the 13th, Prime Minister Nicolae Suka announced his resignation from office saying that he had achieved what he set out to do when he took office in late 2021. Suka, who leads the National Liberal Party, was replaced by coalition ally Marcel Salasio, who leads the Social Democratic Party. As per the coalition agreement that came into force in 2021 between the two parties and a third party, the UDMR, A prime minister swap was supposed to take place in late May this year, but it was actually postponed due to civil unrest. So this was a a planned thing. Moving on to Montenegro. I don't think I've ever talked about that country before on this podcast. SNAP parliamentary elections were held on June 11th, in which the pro-EU Europe Now movement, otherwise known as the PES, claimed victory with 25.6% of the vote. The pro-European Democratic Party of Socialists, otherwise known as DPS, and other small, like-minded parties came in second with 23.7%. 
the For the Future of Montenegro bloc, which is led by the pro-Serbian and Russian Democratic Front, earned 14.7%. Of the 15 parties that participated, nine of them gained seats in the parliament, since the PES took only 24 seats instead of the 41 needed for a majority, it will have to seek to establish a coalition with other like-minded parties to form a government. Moving on to the South Caucasus, another update on that blockade. The blockade is still going on. We've talked about that last week. We talked about that uh, in in at least the four previous news podcasts prior to that. This thing's been going on for over six months, the blockade of the Lachkin Corridor has led to food and medicine shortages in Artsakh, and at least one person dying, as we said before, due to that person not being able to travel to Armenia for a higher echelon of medical care. At this time, the only vehicles being let through still are those belonging to Russian peacekeeping forces and the Red Cross, who is desperately trying to bring aid into Artsakh. Again, this blockade has gone on for over six months. It shows no sign of ending. And another update, actually, on that situation on the 15th, Azerbaijani soldiers, which were escorted by Russian peacekeepers, crossed a bridge that separated the Lachkin Corridor in Armenia. They crossed the border into Armenian sovereign territory and tried to erect the Azerbaijani flag. They were fired upon as soon as they tried to set up the flag, and they scattered. Uh, so that was an interesting incident, to say the least. Moving on to the Indo-Pacific region, this is coming from Alcon Intel. NATO is looking to expand its relationship with allies in the region. The treaty organization wants to establish partnership agreements with Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and South Korea, which are all known as the Asian Pacific Partners, otherwise known as AP4. These partnerships will establish a roadmap for joint efforts in dealing with security issues, Negotiations with Australia are making good progress, while South Korea and New Zealand are still in the early stages of talks. The upcoming NATO summit in Lithuania will see the participation of the AP4 nations, which highlights NATO's focus on the Indo-Pacific. NATO has proposed to open a liaison office in Tokyo, but that has faced some backlash from member nation France and, of course, the People's Republic of China as well, so we'll see if that ends up happening. Moving on to Fiji, this is also from Alcon Intel. The country is reevaluating its security relationship with China. Prime Minister Sitaveni Rabuka announced a review of a 2011 agreement that allows Chinese law enforcement officers to be stationed in Fiji. Rabuka expressed different sets of values between his country and China when suggesting that the agreement may be discontinued. This move may signal a realignment of Fiji in terms of geopolitics away from China and towards countries like New Zealand, Australia, and the U.S. Soon, New Zealand Defense Minister Andrew Little will visit Fiji, and the two countries are expected to sign a status of forces agreement, which will create a legal path for cooperation between the two countries' militaries. Moving on to Papua New Guinea, coming from S24, a new security pact between the country and the U.S. will give the latter unimpeded access to Papua New Guinea's military bases. The U.S. military will be able to garrison forces at six major ports and airports in the country, including Labrum Naval Base and military facilities in the capital city, Port Moresby. U.S. forces would have access to the sites to pre-position equipment and supplies, 
They will also have exclusive access to some zones on specific bases. Establishing a presence on Labrum would give, or I'm sorry, could be used to reinforce Guam in the event of an armed conflict with China, which of course would be crucial. Papua New Guinea lies along multiple heavily used trade routes and is also rich in natural resources, so this deal could prove to be a strategic win for the U.S. in its global competition with the People's Republic of China. Opponents of this deal, including former Prime Minister Peter O'Neill, say that it puts Papua New Guinea's sovereignty at risk and it paints a target on its back. Moving on to Palau, the Pacific Island nation has been pushing for a larger U.S. military presence due to a post-World War II agreement the U.S. is responsible for Palau's defense. The country's president, Serengel Whips Jr., has asked U.S. forces to increase patrols in the area as Chinese vessels have been recently spotted in Palau's exclusive economic zone multiple times. In May, a Chinese sur- survey ship excuse me, was seen operating near fiber optic cables that are crucial to the country's communications network. In an interview, President Whips said that he would welcome a larger U.S. military presence to include the establishment of a garrison to work with U.S. Coast Guard and civil actions teams that are already assigned to Palau. Moving on to Taiwan, the Kaohsiung Municipal Sanmin High School in Taiwan has established a permanent indoor shooting range to train students on marksmanship skills. This comes amid growing threats of military action from China targeting the island nation. Administrators say that the range will teach students basic firearms handling and safety. The facility will also offer classes on basic survival and first aid skills. It is common for Taiwanese schools, in collaboration with the Ministry of National Defense, to open temporary outdoor shooting ranges for one or two days at a time. But this is the first time that a school has actually set up a permanent range. A potential military conflict between China and Taiwan has been the subject of many headlines in recent years. If Taiwan were to indeed be invaded, the nation would face the difficult task of defending its land until foreign assistance can arrive. For this reason, many believe that the civilian populace should undergo basic medical and marksmanship training to prepare themselves. Moving on to Central Asia and the Middle East. In Israel, the military advocate general announced that two Israeli soldiers, one lieutenant and another a sergeant, will not face charges in connection with the death of an elderly Palestinian-American man. In January 2022, 78-year-old Omar Assad showed up to an IDF checkpoint was established in his West Bank village of Jajilia. Soldiers claim that he refused to identify himself when ordered, so they gagged him and bound his hands together with zip ties. The soldier left him and three other Palestinian men at a construction site in near-freezing nighttime temperatures while they went back to their checkpoint. When they came to release him after a half hour, he was unresponsive. Soldiers admitted to investigators that they then left him there, on the ground because they thought he was asleep. He was found a few hours later and declared dead at the scene. An autopsy by the Palestinian Authority said that he had a stress-induced heart attack after he was tackled to the ground, bound, and gagged at the checkpoint. According to Assad's family, he had previously undergone open-heart surgery and was not in good health. An IDF probe after the incident called it a, quote, ethical failure by the soldiers involved. The men were assigned to the Nedza Yehuda Battalion. Two junior officers from that battalion were fired 
and the battalion commander has been formally censured. It's not clear what roles the lieutenant and the sergeant played in this encounter. Indictments were considered after irregularities were found in the conduct of the soldiers at the checkpoint, but the IDF said that a link between their conduct and Mr. Assad's death could not be proven. The IDF also claimed that Assad's family did not cooperate with the investigation and refused to hand over medical documents showing a link between the soldiers' actions and his death. Israel faced pressure to investigate this death from the United States, considering Assad was a U.S. citizen. The defense ministry agreed to pay his family the equivalent of 140000 U.S. dollars for them to drop a legal claim against the government. Soldiers of the Netzai Yehuda Battalion have been at the center of multiple incidents. Some soldiers from that unit have been convicted of torturing and otherwise abusing Palestinian civilians, leading some to call for the battalion to be disbanded. Moving on to Syria, the Autonomous Administration of North and Eastern Syria, the AANES, otherwise known as Rojava, announced that they will begin trials for over 10,000 ISIS foreign fighters that are currently in their prison system. This comes as Rojava authorities claim that the international community is not responding to the thousands of ISIS foreign fighters in custody. In many cases, Western countries in particular have refused to repatriate their citizens that went to fight for ISIS, instead leaving the issue for local authorities to deal with in Syria. On the 12th, a U.S. military non-combat related helicopter mishap led 22 servicemen to be injured. Ten of those servicemen had to be evacuated to different countries for higher levels of care, but all 22 are in stable condition. Most of them are said to be from the U.S. Army's Delta Force. The incident involved one MH-47 Chinook helicopter that had a rotor issue that caused a hard landing during takeoff. The accident is under investigation at this time. The U.S. currently has around 900 troops in Syria at any given time, but this does not include special forces teams that are often in and out of the country and operate in small teams. It also does not include the estimated hundreds of American contractors. Okay, moving on to Afghanistan. This is coming from the Orient Report. Recent satellite images have shown that opium poppy cultivation in Helmand province has dropped by 99% since April 2022. Helmand has historically been Afghanistan's main producer of poppies at over 50% of the country's total. Last April, the Taliban banned the cultivation of opium poppies. Anybody who violates this law is supposedly forced to burn their entire field and is punished according to Sharia law. Poppy cultivation has dropped over 80% across the entire country since its banning. This is fairly ironic considering the fact that the growing of the opium poppy, the main ingredient in the highly addictive drug, was one of the main sources of income for the Taliban during the global war on terror. We will take a quick break and we'll be right back with Africa. Okay, moving on to Africa. During an address to the parliament of Djibouti, Kenyan President Williams Ruto called on African nations to drop the use of the U.S. dollar for intracontinental trade. Ruto favors the Pan-African Payment and Settlement System for the African Export-Import Bank, a.k.a. Afrixim Bank. 
the bank system allows African countries to trade with each other using local currency instead of the U.S. dollar. Ruto is not condemning the U.S. dollar, but he is saying that in his mind, there's no reason why African nations cannot trade with each other in their local currencies. So we'll keep an eye on that and see if anything becomes of it. Moving on to Sudan on June 17th, an airstrike hit the residential area in the capital Khartoum, killing 17 people, including five children. This came just hours before the announcement of a 72-hour ceasefire that was brokered by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. At least 25 homes were damaged in this airstrike in the Yarmouk district. The paramilitary RSF forces have accused the Sudanese military of conducting the strike. The ceasefire went into place on Sunday at 0600 local time, and it is meant to stop hostilities and allow the unimpeded movement of desperately needed humanitarian aid throughout the country. As of Sunday at 0230 local time, the RSF has pledged to honor the ceasefire on social media, but the military has not commented on it. Every previous ceasefire agreement that has so far been brokered has been broken. Since the fighting began on April 15th, at least 3,000 people have died and 6,000 have been injured, according to the country's health ministry. Hospitals are past max capacity and facing a major supply shortage in West Darfur State. All major hospitals have stopped providing health services, while a few clinics remain operational in Khartoum. Only 40 of the city's 130 hospitals are still in operation. Moving on to Nigeria, the country's military recently published a video showing airstrikes conducted by Chinese-made Wang Loon 2 drones and Brazilian Super Tucano attack planes. The strikes were targeting members of the Islamist terrorist group Boko Haram in Borno State. Borno State is rife with insurgency from multiple Islamist groups, including Boko Haram and the Islamic State's West Africa province. From June 9th to June 11th, the military claims that these drone strikes or airstrikes killed roughly 100 militants. The Nigerian Air Force is one of the largest overseas buyers of Chinese equipment. The service's entire UAV fleet is comprised of Chinese UAVs, Wing Loon 2s, CH-3s, and CH-4s. Moving on to Uganda, also on the 17th, members of the Allied Democratic Forces, ADF, a faction of them that is sworn to the Islamic State, attacked a school in the town of Mopandui, which is near the border with the Democratic Republic of Congo. The five militants killed at least 37 people and wounded six others, most of whom were students. Three students were rescued, but six were abducted. During that attack, the dormitory building was burned out and the food stores were looted. Security forces have been deployed to find the attackers, including air assets. The Baluku faction of the ADF broke off from the main force in 2019 and pledged allegiance to the Islamic State. But the UN remains skeptical as to how much control the Islamic State actually exerts over the faction. This is the deadliest terrorist attack in Uganda in years. Moving on to Americas, uh, just a quick update for the bulletin that released on June 15th, the bulletin from the Borderlands. And the Americas desk covered the Trump indictment, of course, giving a little more information on that. And also the Chinese spy base that has been set up in Cuba that made headlines last week, too. So if you want to learn about that, head over to the Lethal Minds Journal and, uh, yeah, take a look at that. Moving on to Mexico, Tijuana Mayor Montserrat Caballero has left her home and is now living in a military base in the city. 
due to multiple attempts on her life and death threats from drug cartels. Caballero is a member of President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's National Regeneration Movement, also known as Morena. AMLO, as he is known, has confirmed the threats on Caballero's life and says that federal security forces have been protecting her for the past two weeks. Among her personal security detail are members of the Mexican Navy's Fuerzas Especiales, FES, which is a Tier 1 Special Operations Unit. This unit utilizes armored vehicles and decoys, which highlights the severity of the threat to the mayor's life. This news comes during a very difficult time for Tijuana. Multiple drug cartels regularly fight each other for control of the border city, which facilitates much legal and illegal commerce from the United States. Along with that, Caballero has been stepping up anti-cartel actions in the city. A recent push by security forces in Tijuana has led to the confiscation of over 1,700 firearms and the arrest of 56 people who are believed to be cartel-linked. Moving on to the U.S., we have a presidential race update. Miami Mayor Francis X. Suarez is running on the Republican ticket. That makes him the third Republican running from Florida. Moving on, the House Homeland Security Committee, which is led by Chairman Mark Green, a Republican from Tennessee, has launched an investigation into Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas for dereliction of duty in regards to the situation on the southern border. In a press conference, Green said that, quote, Secretary Mayorkas has put the national security of the United States at risk. Terrorists, suspected terrorists and enemies of our nation have flooded across our borders, end quote. Green also noted that there has been a surge in Chinese nationals that have illegally crossed the border since 2021. Green claims that many of them are military-age males with no ties to the People's Liberation Army and the Chinese Communist Party who have been released into the United States by the Department of Homeland Security. He says that intelligence was given to him directly by an unnamed Border Patrol sector chief and members of Congress will soon be given a classified briefing in relation to that claim. In fiscal year 2021, the number of Border Patrol encounters with Chinese nationals was 450, but in the first seven months of fiscal year 2023, that number has jumped to almost 10,000. Green blames Mayorkas for a sharp decrease in deportations in comparison to the last two administrations, despite a sharp increase in illegal border crossings. Since January 2021, there have been an estimated 1.5 million gotaways, and that basically means that somebody that Border Patrol is not aware that crossed the country, they didn't make contact with them, as opposed to 415,000 from 2018 to 2020. Representative Green estimates that the investigation will take 10 to 12 weeks. At that point, he will turn over his findings to the House Judiciary Committee, which will decide whether or not to begin impeachment proceedings for Mayorkas. Four House Republicans have already filed impeachment articles for him. Those are Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, Andy Biggs of Arizona, Pat Fallon of Texas, and Clay Higgins of Louisiana. Moving on, on June 13th, high-ranking officials from the CIA, FBI, and NSA appeared in front of Congress to urge lawmakers to reauthorize Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, also known as FISA, which is set to expire at the end of the year. FISA is a law that went into effect in 1978 that establishes procedures for the collection and surveillance of foreign intelligence on U.S. soil. Since 9-11, the 
Act has been amended multiple times. One of those amendments, Section 702, allows the Attorney General and the Director of National Intelligence to jointly authorize FISA targeting of non-U.S. citizens outside of U.S. territory. However, under that section, U.S. citizens may also find themselves under surveillance as they are subject to incidental collection, meaning that any communications between a U.S. citizen and a foreign national under FISA surveillance are subject to intelligence collection. Section 702 is used to authorize programs like the NSA's PRISM, the Internet Data Collection Program that was first disclosed by NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. The intelligence apparatus says that Section 702 is an invaluable tool in combating terrorism, but critics, including some lawmakers, say that government agencies have used the provision to conduct unchecked and warrantless spying on Americans. Intel officials urge Congress to reauthorize the section without adding reforms that they say would limit or slow their access to some intelligence, while opponents of the section say that added reforms would safeguard the constitutional rights of Americans. Officials use the 9-11 attacks and the potential for a repeat as justification for reauthorizing the section with no additional amendments. When he opened the hearing on June 13th, Senate Judiciary Chair Dick Durbin, a Democrat, vowed that he would not reauthorize 702 without new safeguards being put into place, saying that the, quote, warrantless surveillance of Americans in violation of the Fourth Amendment, end quote, must be addressed. Many of Durbin's Republican colleagues on the Judiciary Committee feel the same way. Additionally, 702 has been heavily criticized by groups like the ACLU and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. The CIA tried to justify the use of Section 702 by saying that almost 60% of the intelligence in the president's daily brief comes from information gathered using the section. The FBI said that the safeguards that are put into place internally should be enough to get the reauthorization. One of these is a three-strike policy of escalating punishments for agents that are found to be misusing FISA authority. But Dick Durbin was not convinced, saying that more safeguards are still needed. A coalition of opponents to the section argued that it has been used to justify vast unconstitutional intelligence gathering on Americans, including over 100 Black Lives Matter activists, multiple journalists, and at least one U.S. lawmaker currently sitting in office. On June 14th in Orange County, California, agents with the FBI in the Naval Criminal Investigative Service and CIS arrested two men who are accused of firebombing a Planned Parenthood clinic in Costa Mesa with a Molotov cocktail. Tibet Ergol, 21, of Irvine, and Chance Brandon, 23, in active duty Marines stationed at Camp Pendleton, were arrested without incident. They were charged in the U.S. District Court of the Central District of California in Santa Ana, the only information released by the Marine Corps regarding Brandon is that he enlisted in 2018 and is assigned to 1st Radio Battalion 1 MEF Information Group as a Persian Farsi cryptolinguist. The criminal complaint alleges that both men firebombed the clinic on March 13, 2022. Security camera footage shows them approaching the clinic wearing hoodies and face masks at roughly 1 in the morning and throwing the Molotov cocktail at the main entrance. If convicted, the men face a maximum of 20 years in federal prison. And lastly, on the 16th, Daniel Ellsberg passed away at the age of 92. Ellsberg was a former official at the Department of Defense and an employee at the Rand Corporation when he leaked a 7,000-page document on the Vietnam War 
known as the Pentagon Papers, to the press. He did so in the hope that the papers would end the conflict. Before he left Rand, he contributed to a classified study commissioned by Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara on the conduct of the Vietnam War. The study would become the Pentagon Papers, and the papers showed that the Johnson administration routinely lied to the American people and to Congress about the status of the war. Ellsberg would become disillusioned with the war, attending anti-war protests and eventually leaving the Rand Corporation. He leaked the papers to the New York Times in 1971, and the leak is credited with being a major factor in ending American combat involvement in the war two years later. Ellsberg was charged under the 1917 Espionage Act and other charges of theft and conspiracy. He faced a maximum of 115 years in prison, but was acquitted after his lawyers made government misconduct and illegal evidence gathering a key part of their defense. Ellsberg was also a Marine Corps first lieutenant serving from 1954 to 1957 as a company commander with 2nd Marine Division. That is all I have for you guys. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me, and you can find this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts on any app. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That's all one word. You could also find us on Telegram at Analyze and Educate. That's the and symbol, not and spelled out. Please consider supporting us on Patreon again and at Ko-Fi, ko-fi.com. Please be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app you listen to this podcast with, and I'll see you guys next week.